You're listening to Citizens History, a podcast asking how history will help us to identify and address the most urgent challenges facing the United States and the world. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 5. I'm Padraig Rowan, a historian at Quincy University. Today's episode, recorded on the 23rd of August, 2023, in Quincy, Illinois, is a roundtable conversation between me, my co-host, J. Matt Ward, also a historian at QU, and two special guests. Patrick Hoddle is a professor of history at Culver Stockton College, just nearby, who is currently co-writing a book about Missouri during the Civil War. Uh, Our other special guest, Sam Swisher, is also a professor of history at Hannibal LaGrange University, and he specializes in Renaissance and Reformation history. Our theme today, or at least our starting point, is public morality. And as you'll see, there is going to be much more to talk about in future episodes. But as always, we invite you to become a part of the conversation and welcome your comments, your criticism, and your suggestions for future episodes. Citizens History. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. J. Matt, do you want to get us started with a few framing questions? Sure. Well, I can't remember exactly how this conversation got started, but we were all having lunch at uh, Greek to Me a few weeks ago, and somebody, I think it might have been you, Sam, not to pick on you, might have said something about the decline of morality in general. And I can't remember how that came up. It might have been over a discussion of uh, that song, Don't yeah. Try That in a Small Town yeah. by whatever his name is. And I guess I pushed back on that a little bit. But since those weeks, I've had time to consider my position and think about ways that I disagree and ways that I do agree. So I guess where we should start is from time to time, especially because I grew up in the deep south evangelical christianity all this stuff we hear messages in america all the time about the decline of public morals the decline of the nation the decline of public morality what do we mean by that and how is that distinguished from private morals private morality i think it'd be a good place to start yeah i i think um when when the conversation first came up uh i think uh, we, uh, at least when, as I was thinking about it, I was thinking in terms of, for want of a better term, the kind of rules that uh, civil society needs in order to function as a reasonable version of the democratic process. And if you're going to have a certain assumptions, knowing and accepting the fact that politics is politics, and there's always going to be plenty of of, um, of you know, messing with the truth or adjusting the truth, but th- but there does have to be, I think, a s- sort of foundational belief in the rules of the game. Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess I was thinking of it in terms of p- 
public morality, as in rules, the kind of rules of the game, the rules of the political process that you need in order for people to accept that they lose an election, fair and square, they've lost, they accept it, uh, that they accept the, the consequences of a election, uh, flawed though they might be, they're probably pretty good, and so you accept that that's pretty good and that's good enough. Uh, so when I think about uh, public morality, I guess I very much think in terms of the, the, the democratic process here in America. Okay. All right. So there's a democratic order. There's certain rules to it. They might be a little fluid, but we need to adhere to those to maintain general order in the nation. Is that what I'm... Yeah, I think in a way there has to be a sort of fundamental acceptance of the Constitution, knowing mm -hmm. that it's debatable, obviously. Mm -hmm. That's why you have a judicial system, but that that um, uh, you have to accept that, that the, the rules of the different branches of government have their duties, and you accept that they do, and when they when they play their role, that that's, uh, that's accepted. It's not immediately defied because it isn't pleasing to the whichever political party. Yeah. Is it the losing it? Okay. Well, I think what we, what we really need to do is talk about what morality is. Okay. Before we're going to talk about public morality. What is it. morality? I love it. And from what source do we have morality? Um, I happen to uh, just be reading The Coddling of the American Mind and The Righteous Mind before that by John Hyde. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, that's the entire basis of the book, The Righteous Mind, uh, basically is, is deciding about uh, what morality is and, and determining that that is something that is essential to civilization. Uh, and as a Christian, I come to that answer differently than he does. He talks about this being an evolutionary process and so forth. Well, I don't think that's, that's not the way I would view it. Yeah. The way I would view it, of course, is that uh, we have uh, morality based upon what uh, God's standards of righteousness are. And uh, I think that's been the case in many circumstances throughout history. So, so if we want to talk about that, what, what morality is, is uh, not something we just all sit around the table and decide. Because if it is, it's changing, turbulent, and uh, so uh, I don't know if you want to discuss well, yeah. that. Some people call that received knowledge or yeah. received morality. Would that be how you align Well, yourself? I would say, again, it's objective. It's not something that we make uh, ourselves, although, of course, we make laws. Mm. And we, as societies, we decide what is right and what is wrong. But if it's simply evolutionary, then that can change and can change quite dramatically. And Height in his book discusses the fact that there are differences worldwide um, that speak to the fact that this is not objective, but rather it's something that is uh, arrived at by people through an evolutionary process. Well, I would disagree with that because I think there's a lot more commonality of morality around the world than there are differences. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think there is something innate in us. I mean, if you've ever, <laughs> I used to tell students this, if you've ever watched a you know, group of two-year-olds, two-year-olds have an innate sense of right and wrong because they'll go over to something and they know they're not supposed to do it, but they'll look at you like, are you going to stop me? They have that already in them. It's not something that they've, you know, grown through an evolutionary process to understand. <laughs> and everybody identifies with that because they've watched two-year-olds. So I think we have to discuss that. I mean, as a Christian, I, you know, morality comes from a source, an objective source. It's not just something I make up. Mm. And I think that's recognized in the founding documents of the United States. Even though this is not a Christian nation and not explicitly uh, 
made as such, uh, they were using an understanding of that concept that, you know, we have these rights endowed by our Creator, uh, and those rights do have a moral framework in which they reside. So, yeah, th this is this is a, a really interesting tension. I think we we should probably spend some time on it. The natural rights uh, that many of our founders subscribed to. And not all, but many of our founders would also have taken it for granted that we were a Christian nation at that point. And nowadays, uh, even if even if one identifies as, as a Christian conservative, you would not may, maybe many would still insist that it is a Christian nation, but many would stay even in the midst of a Christian conservative position. Okay, we are no longer exactly that. Nevertheless, there is a continuity. Nevertheless, the Constitution still applies. Nevertheless, there is a through line. And I struggle with this because, you know, Patrick, you bring up, you bring up politics, right? And how exactly, given the rules of the game as our founders understood them, and given the rules of the game as we understand them, there's some continuity, right? Let's say the Electoral College. And many, many people would like to change that rule of the game. Or think about the ways in which the Senate, the, uh, the Federal Senate was selected at the beginning versus the way it's selected now. Um, can we manage to keep a stability amidst continuity? Uh, and can we Can we find, because Sam, I imagine that you would find some common ground, maybe a lot of common ground with Jonathan Haidt, right? In his, at the same time as you differ fundamentally on, on the sources of morality. Right. So this, this feels important too. I would like to flag for later, just so we don't forget. If we talk about morality and politics, we need to talk about Machiavelli. And I, I, I know that Sam, you, you have a lot of perspectives on this too that there are, for Machiavelli, very different ways of approaching uh, morality in politics. As far as he's concerned, there is a, there's a kind of a, a, basically a rule for the elites and a rule perhaps for others. But he wants to, in some ways, strive for what he would call realism. And he, he bears a remarkable resemblance to medieval Islamic jurists I, I, uh, who, for example, because society is in such a chaotic state in much of medieval, uh, in much of medieval Islam, you know, you've got tribes coming off the steppe or coming out of the North African desert, displacing uh, governments, becoming rulers themselves, themselves becoming corrupted, and the process starting again. Medieval Islamic jurists developed, I'm not sure if we can call it a formal theory of morality, but they developed certain rules to certify the outcomes of these struggles in much the same way that the judiciary today kind of certifies the outcome of certain political debates. And one of the, one of the conclusions that they came to is, look, given the violent state of society and the violent flux that ruling classes undergo, that for them, it is irrelevant what happens before you gain power. 
when you, you, by hook or by crook, you came to power, and you probably committed a lot of atrocities. But we're judging you from now. Now that you are in power, what exactly uh, is the standard by which we're going to judge you? Because it's going to be a higher standard than uh, whatever, whatever, you, whatever you did in order to gain this. So I know that that's a lot to, buy, that that's a lot to chew on. But, uh, well, it's I, interesting that you bring up Machiavelli because uh, I think we've talked about James Hankins' book, uh, Virtue Politics. Yeah. And he looks at Machiavelli as not really representative of what the Renaissance thinkers, the humanists, were really Absolutely. all about politically. Yeah. Uh, even though he's taken to be that by most people today. And, uh, but, uh, but rather, James Hankins' argument is that the humanist scholars believe that you can't have good government. In fact, democracy for them was a, was a, uh, a synonym for bad government. And they said that uh, you, know, you really had to have a virtuous ruling class to have good government. You can have all the laws, you can have all the constitutions you want, but if you don't have a virtuous ruling class, it won't work. Doesn't Hankin in virtu uh, virtue is it Hankins mm -hmm. or Hankins, yeah. right. in virtue politics? Doesn't he argue ultimately for this for the kind of standard view that Machiavelli was fundamentally amoral, or is it a little bit more complicated than that? Well, I'm not sure if he says that or not. He's more interested, I think, in in uh, trying to identify what the humanists thinkers were really talking about. In the, in the broad scheme of things, because we focus yeah. on Machiavelli, but really much more was involved with the humanist thinkers in terms of their understanding of what true, poly, or true um, uh, virtue was. And of course, they went back to the Romans. They went right back to the Roman civic virtue concept. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Patrick, I wonder if you, if you could comment on, so John Adams famously said that the Constitution the U.S. Constitution was made for a moral people. He said, it's not going to work if we don't have that background of Christian morality. Uh, given all of the changes that we've seen between that time and this, can you draw also some continuity? Uh, or is it, is it really a question of fundamentally rejigging what we mean by morality and public morality? Uh, to get to where we are now. Well, it's uh, interesting. I'm just reflecting on bringing Machiavelli into this, and I'll kind of come back to that. I wonder yeah, if Machiavelli yeah. is. I mean, we, you know, we tend to think in terms of international affairs, Machiavelli is <laughs> so often quoted and referred to as, yeah, the, yeah. You know, especially in the realm of international relations. But I, I think when trying to come to terms with American public morality. Uh, it seems like the Enlightenment uh, and the Enlightenment thinkers um, are somehow more fundamental to the construction of the Constitution. Um, so back to your question about what, you know what um, you, you talk about John Adams that we fundamentally need a, a moral people to, in order to make a democratic process or a democratic experiment work. Um, I think it's interesting, and, and, as Sam pointed out, uh, democracy was a bad thing in the 15th, 16th century. You had models like Venice that were, you know, oligarchies at, at best, but they called themselves democracy. Um, so, so I guess um, um, maybe we should bring in the, the what are the 18th century conceptions of 
morality. So how did they, and how, how were, the, were those thinkers engaging with it uh, when they were trying to come to terms with, with um, a good government, uh, you know, yeah. in the fullest yeah. sense of the word? Um, I guess my, I began by sort of pointing to reason, um, again, the Enlightenment, also the age of reason, that reason suggests that there is some sort of an objective truth and that, that that has to be the bottom line for a functioning government is that there's an acceptance of truth. So when I say acceptance of the game, there has to yeah, be yeah. A, a fundamental acceptance that that actually exists. Yeah. Uh, I immediately... Uh, I'm just going to bring go ahead. to uh, the, con you know, the concept of ob objective morality even I think you find this in like state Confucianism in China, you know, when you have the five relationships that Confucius talks about, you know. Those are really, I mean, there's a subjective element, of course, in those, but there's really an objective truth there that, that these relationships are the key relationships in any society functioning well. So uh, I think I agree with Patrick. There has to be something that keeps the society together that is uh, outside of our own making, in a sense, because if, if that's not what there is, that radically can change over time. And I think we, we understand that in, a, in the United States that has been true, that there have been changing standards, the, the so-called Overton window of what's accepted and what's not. Um, but still, uh, I think a lot of people want to have the confidence that there is some sort of objective reality that they're basing these things on, or objective truth that they're basing these It's always wrong to, you know, for a politician to lie, for example, even though, even though we know they do, we still try to call them out on it. Um, that type of thing, you know, even though we know no one's perfect and no one perfectly lives up to those uh, standards, but we still try to at least pay lip service to the standards. Yeah. I was struck by this question about morality and the place of slavery in American history, <clears throat> where, what, where when the Constitution was written, though they were, the writers were concerned about slavery and, and generally felt uncomfortable with it, uh, they weren't quite ready to dispense with it. And then, as the decades went by, they found that, that uh, some of them really had to come around to fundamentally defending it, uh, that it was a really sticky thing to pull out of. Um, and it's interesting now that you know, slavery is something that's absolutely reprehensible in contemporary public morality. But 19th century, in the 1820s, half of the United States, if no more, would not have felt that way. And even the uh, the bulk of the population would have been troubled by the notion of what they called amalgamation, the mixing of the races, would have been seen as, as uh, completely unacceptable in terms of public morality, uh, even though it existed uh, often against the will of the slave women who were subject to male domination. Um, so, you know, I think that's public morality. I don't know that I have any clarity on it because it's an interesting and, and to some degree it is an evolving thing, isn't it? Uh, I mean, you, you think that we have a clear sense of that if we want to take the Christian foundation of Ten Commandments, and yet even that is subject to a lot of, uh, slavery is a glaring example of that, um, you know, because the Bible, you can find, certainly find passages to defend it. So, uh, so where do we turn for direction for public morality? I want to just say something about yeah. what you just said, yeah. Patrick, because I, I think 
this is a common understanding that, you know, uh, does the Bible condone slavery or not? And I think the Bible basically, and this is cer certainly something that Jesus does, uh, he, ne he, he, he uh, never uh, advocates for a, a person to um, engage in revolution. Uh, in other words, you stay in the circumstance in which you're called, uh, no matter what that is, if it's slavery, if it's not slavery. Uh, Paul even says, if you, can, if you can free yourself, great. But otherwise, you know, you have to just live with that consequence. It's not, you know, I've heard people talk about Jesus being a revolutionary. Well, in what way was he a revolutionary? He might have been revolutionary in the sense that he was finally bringing back the religious Jews to understand what the law really was. <laughs> but he wasn't revolutionary in terms of overthrowing the Roman government or anything like that. In fact, just the opposite. So I think there's a sense in which, even though slavery was and is an evil institution, obviously, it's... You know, Jesus certainly, I think, uh, and Paul too, and the other New Testament writers, you, you stay in the condition you're called. You're, you're never really, uh, uh, that's really not the issue. You know, again, if you're a slave when you become saved, you just deal with that. You don't have the right to revolt against your slave, slave owners. Um, I think that's more of what I see in, in, in the New Testament and the Old Testament. Not a condoning of slavery, but you, you just stay in the condition in which you're called. Yeah, the the tradition of like the Justinian's Code, for example, you know this very Christian emperor. Yes, uh, and people forget about this. This is the Justinian's Code is probably the greatest. I don't mean that in a positive way necessarily, but uh, the greatest collection of laws regarding slavery, regulating slavery ever in human history. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's a uh, it, it's something that goes very very deep into into Christian history. Well, I'll be the token left-wing uh, uh -oh. response. There's this uh, phrase, I don't think it quite has much popularity as it does a few years ago, but this phrase that you know, silence is violence. That if you if something bad is occurring and you take this attitude of just you know accepting your place, say, in like the, the liberal framework, and, and don't do anything about it because that might upset the, the establishment, that in and of itself is uh, an implicit support of a negative or immoral system. How would you respond to, because I don't want to say you're supporting slavery, I don't think you are, but it, it seems like, I guess I don't understand your, your response to the slavery critique. Okay, right. well I would, I would suggest you read Jonathan Haidt's book, Coddling of the American Mind, because he okay. deals with ten cognitive distortions, mm -hmm. uh, which can be addressed by cognitive behavioral therapy, and that's one of them, the silence and violence, uh, yeah, yeah. that type of thing, that's a cognitive distortion. Another one is catastrophizing, which we see all the time. People think it's the end of the world if Trump gets elected, re-elected, or, you know, or if Biden is re-elected, or whatever. It's, it's, you know, we, we tend to catastrophize. So, but my, my argument is the Bible does not condone slavery. It just, the emphasis is on, as Christians, we may be called, in fact, we are called to suffer, may be called to suffer. You know, Jesus very clearly says this. And so, if you are never in a condition where you suffer, is that really Christianity? Mm -hmm. um, if, if you've ever seen the movie Silence, has anyone has either, have either seen it? Is that the Scorsese film? film? Yeah, Scorsese I haven't seen film. it, but I... I About I, the I, Jesuits in Japan. It's on my list. Yeah, you should see that movie too, because these people were told either you, you renounce Jesus or you die, on the spot. Mm -hmm. And so I think Christianity is never portrayed, as far as I'm concerned, in the New Testament, as something where you, you never are in a bad condition, human flourishing. I really don't agree with this either. Human flourishing is not the summum bonum of Christianity. 
you know, because you may be called to suffer. You may be called, I've talked to people who have been, you probably have too overseas, people have been threatened with death if they remain in the faith. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly not a flourishing uh, condition. <laughs> So, so the abolitionists yeah. who stand opposed to slavery, limited that they might have been in the northern right. population, versus the the people who are adamantly defending slavery from a biblical perspective in the right. south. Of course, both of them are doing something. They're Certainly. acting on their faith right. that the Bible says you know God's going to set everyone free, or they're acting on their faith that you know God has appointed these people, enslaved people, as part of some sort of sure. labor system under the uh, supervision of white people those two things don't they, they can't work at the same time well, so who is who was wrong for pushing their perspective well I did a, a paper in college on uh, Stephen uh, anyway he was an Episcopal Bishop in South Carolina mm -hmm. and uh, he justified the southern cause is that Thornwell no um, I forget his last name anyway but you can do a lot of things with the Bible mm -hmm. that aren't correct uh, and certainly that's one of them, uh, justifying slavery. But we also have to understand that slavery was not just a black and white issue. Mm -hmm. In fact, slavery, many more uh, Muslims took white people in and Europeans into slavery in North Africa, than, and you're familiar with this, I'm sure, but uh, then, were, then black slaves were taken over to North America or uh, South America. And so slavery was a, a common condition. And see, that's why in the New Testament, that's why I think it's not condoning slavery, just saying, if you happen to be a slave, don't try to free yourself. Just, you know, live into that condition, glorify God in that condition, um, and bear up under it. And I think that's been true historically. But in the, in the question of public morality, right. both of these sides are defending what they see to be the public morality. Right. One of them has to win. You right. seem to be saying that everybody should just stay put, no, and I'm not sure that that... Like well, his, the, the levers of history will move, and I guess I'm wondering, where do they go using that perspective? Well, if we're a Christian, if we're a theocracy, then you could move it in one direction. But we're not a theocracy, mm -hmm. you know. So in that sense, you're going to have these competing ideas, and eventually one of them will win out. And I think, in fact, most of the uh, arguments... Well, let me put it this way. I think that uh, even... The founders agreed that the slave trade should be ended, which they did by 1808. Mm. They promised to do that, and they did that. Yeah. So there was always this understanding that this was not a good institution, regardless of the Fugitive Slave Clause, regardless of the Three-Fifths Clause. Those, if you read Madison's notes, there's another great book. I think I've mentioned this many times. I don't think I want, but No Property in Man. I've read it. Yeah, and so I reviewed it for the yeah, Civil War. Yeah, okay, Booker. good. And so you know, um, you know that Madison, you know assiduously avoided using that term slavery or slaves really and you know a, a, a person involved in service or something like that could which could have applied to indentured servants servants as well and the reason for that from what I understand I'm not an expert in this area mm -hmm. as you are is that so that states could take you know that that uh, action to abolish slavery eventually uh, so what I'm saying I guess is that Stephen, you know, whatever his last name was, <laughs> the Bishop of South Carolina, could obviously use scripture to defend the Southern cause. Mm -hmm. And that was done by many. That doesn't mean he's right. He might have been right in other ways and wrong in that one. We're all in that camp. We've all, we all have beliefs in one area that are wrong and beliefs in other areas that may not be wrong. So I think that's, that's been true of Christians as well. Yeah. Christ, Christ, sorry, go, go ahead, Patrick. 
Well, I've just got to follow up and actually direct it to you sure. uh, a bit because uh, this is your you know, study this area quite a bit. So this, so my understanding um, is that um, one of the main sources of the rejection of slavery for the early abolitionists was coming out of the Second Great Awakening mm -hmm. and the notion, and you get to Charles Finney, yeah. you know, and the notion that you have to. Uh, try to uh, prepare the way for the second coming, which means that you need to save as many souls as possible, mm -hmm. and that slaves, because of the nature of slavery, were not getting access to the gospel. So thus, slavery needed to be ended in order for the slaves to be brought in, uh, so that the souls could be purified, as yes, it were. Yes, certainly. Um, which, uh, you know, when, that, uh, when I think about that, uh, and of course, over time, the abolitionists um, moved from those kind of arguments to somewhat more political arguments. But I wonder if there isn't sort of the seed of, of uh, and I think some people try to find it there, the seed of modern human rights, mm -hmm. reception of human rights or civil rights, yeah. um, of the sort of notion that even, in a way, is transcending the religious argument that humans somehow have some certain particular have value. That in the 20th century, uh, moderate liberalism is sort of engaged with. Mm -hmm. Is that a good direction to think uh, in terms, absolutely. or is that, or is it coming from someplace else? No, I think that's a great way to interpret it. The abolitionists are this this motley crew of different folks who are approaching anti-slavery from a variety of different perspectives. Think of Harriet Beecher Stowe and Uncle Tom's Cabin. She's approaching it from what I would call a 19th century liberal feminist perspective. The slavery fundamentally destroys the household. I mean, you have sexual aggressions against black women, you have families separated, you know, children sold away from parents, uh, husbands and wives sold away, and you can trace, I, when I teach this book, I, I try to drill this into my students' heads. This is years before Heart of Darkness by mm -hmm. Joseph Conrad. This is years before Apocalypse Now, but the further uh, Uncle Tom goes down the Mississippi River, the more terrible the landscape gets, the more terrible the personalities get. So some abolitionists are attacking slavery, not only from a human rights perspective, but from like, slavery is bad for America's public morality. It's bad for family values. It's bad for one's own soul. Because Simon Legree, the last owner that holds Uncle Tom, is like this a persistent drunk and he's terrified of ghosts of, of slaves he's killed before and I think you can see a great example this book that sold millions of copies in the United States is using the idea of public morality to attack slavery and say this is the reason we need to get rid of it so it's but, bad, for the, bad for the slave owners as well as the slaves. Yeah. In, in other words. And it's not just you know, economically bad or bad because the founders were for it or against it. It's bad because it rots the soul. So the, the, there's something about the public morality of slavery that we need to address. And that's kind of why I was, I was right. needling you a little, sure, a, a little sure. bit, Sam, because it seems to me that both of these sides are so entrenched. Mm -hmm. But you know, and Well, it's you, interesting. Not all the... If you, if you argue with folks who subscribe to some version of the lost cause today, mm -hmm. you will get a very interesting kind of slippage of that. They won't acknowledge that, no, 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 no. We, my people, you know, in those years before and after the Civil War, were very much hankering after a biblical justification for slavery. Mm -hmm. We, no, 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 we understood the economic arguments. It was going to get... Uh, 
abolished anyway, and Lincoln came along and destroyed the country with the Civil War. Like, you'll get this weird rewriting of history. Mm. And so it's a, I'm not saying there's any basis to this argument, but it's an interesting kind of, it's an interesting slippage, an interesting rewriting of history to say, no, 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 we were, we're, we're the good guys, and that, that whole thing about the biblical justifications, that was an aberration at best. But if we look at the ways in which religion functions mm-hmm. over time, uh, we've got to uh, accept the messy contradiction, right? That it can be and is a vehicle for social protest and revolt, right? And maybe Jesus wasn't a dreaming. Uh, uh, well, I don't know. I mean, it depends on your definition of revolutionary, <laughs> right? I think immediately of his kicking the money changers out of the temple. And most importantly, I think of the general landscape of ancient Judea, right? You've got the high priests in Jerusalem who are doing their best to cooperate with the, with the Roman occupiers. And you've got, there was absolutely nothing special about Jesus going out into the desert and fasting for 40 days and coming back and causing trouble, mostly for the high priests in Jerusalem, right? And so in the sense of uh, prophets, revolutionaries, would-be messiahs, um, these people were certainly as far as the, the Pharisees and, uh, uh, and the high priests in Jerusalem concerned, revolutionary. And so you've got that vehicle of social protest and revolt, and you can, we, can, we can see it working with the abolitionists as well in the 19th century. And we've got the vehicle of social control. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to say, oh, well, that's all bad. And, uh, but, and, and certainly in the case of justifying slavery, we can, we can roundly condemn it. But social control has many, many different facets, and we would probably be unwise to poo-poo the, the whole shebang, right? That religion does function in both ways. And, um, well, I think what you're, what you're recognizing there, I, I think you're right about, you know, uh, but Jesus you know, was challenging the, the religious leaders to understand what was true, which they didn't. You know, he would say, you've heard it said, but I say unto you about the law, for example. And he wasn't telling his followers, you need to overthrow these people, nor was he telling his followers, you need to overthrow the Romans. He was, he was challenging the religious leaders because they were lying about, about what God really said through the law to the people. And he talks about them being whitewashed tombstones full of dead men's bones and that type of thing. They're hypocrites. If you, if you really want to think about it, Jesus talks more about hypocrisy than he does almost anything else as being a, a bad thing. If you want to talk about public morality, uh, and again about public morality, yeah. speaking truth is much more important than lying, and that's what he was trying to get across. Again, he wasn't mm-hmm. telling people to revolt. He certainly could. He certainly could have told everyone. Paul could have later said the same thing, but he didn't. In fact, Paul in Romans 13 says you, you, you submit to authority because it's there by God's direction. So... I wouldn't call him a revolutionary. I would say he's he's correcting. Uh, if you're talking about revisionist history, he's correcting revisionist religion, where the Pharisees and the Sadducees were distorting what the law said and not really giving people the truth about that. And that's what made him angry. That's why he was angry at the money changers as well. It was righteous indignation against them using the temple for something that wasn't really a spiritual purpose. I, I think I, I agree with you. I think that, that yeah. is sort of the message. But I am struck, I think, in medieval history, in terms of 
of how um, the, the way the church dealt with what you might say revolutionary movements within the church is to create religious <laughs> orders, right? The Franciscans. And, yeah. Um, and they're a particularly good example of a would-be batch of revolutionaries. It's very appropriate we're talking about them here in those <laughs> terms. But, it, but I, I think the cat religion is such a vast category. Mm. We tend to separate, when we think of, of, of reality, we're still kind of stuck with St. Augustine, you know, the, the church and state, the city of God, city of man. Um, and, and I'm, you know, I have heaven that I forbid I should take on St. Augustine. But I, I, you know, I think that religion is such a vast, all-pervasive, uh, culturally influential thing. Uh, I think it's hard to talk about revolution as a separate category, inside or outside of the church, as a separate. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so I, yeah. so getting back to then, so what is Jesus? You know, he certainly played. I mean, you know, one can't help but think of liberation theology. That South Americans certainly took him as a revolutionary figure, didn't they? That pushed back against the, uh, the, uh, the uh, mistreatment of the ordinary folk, right? He was the champion of the little guy in uh, liberation theology. Uh, so he certainly served that purpose, the business about giving your shirt. Uh, you know, that he could, even in that context, he took on kind of a Marxist. Or at least he was taken on as that, as that, uh, that they were happy to sort of uh, turn him into a sort of Marxist saint. And um, the early church, I think, collected a lot of money and distributed to, to the, the wives and orphans, or sure. widows and orphans. And some people have taken that from, uh, from a Marxist lens. Yeah, the widows and orphans, a very long pedigree. Hammurabi and even further back, you know, I have protected the widows and orphans. I, uh, and whether or not, it, sometimes it's bound to be propaganda, and sometimes yeah. it's actually true. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to circle back, using this discussion of religion, to not only public morality, but what you were talking about with the Enlightenment, and with reason. Because, you know, we, we do have a lot of people today, increasing numbers of people in the Western world today, saying, of course, Religion does not need to be the basis of morality at all. In fact, we can we can found it on on firmer principles. We can, and two. Well, one big problem, one big counterpoint, and then I'd like to ask you a question and kind of give you a uh, give you something to play with. So, Diderot, Denis Diderot, one of the great uh, philosophers of the Enlightenment. Right, the, the mastermind of the encyclopedia. In his, in some of his key articles in the encyclopedia, and this was, I forget if this was before or after it was banned and it started getting uh, uh, published in Amsterdam or wherever it was, but he basically lays out his attempt at an objective morality that isn't uh, based in any kind of religion, that is based, in fact, in reason. And he, he ends up with some really, really balderdash conclusions. Conclusions that would, that, that would make our blood run cold, in fact. He says, look, once reason has been established, once the truth, once the objective truth has been established, uh, anyone who goes against that truth 
is, and these are his exact words, an enemy of the human race. That, so he, he has, in, in, and in many ways we still have today this faith in objective reality and faith in objective truth. But it's easy for us to see, oh, well, he, he thought he was at the objective truth, and maybe he really wasn't, just like many of us think that we're at the objective truth, and maybe we really aren't. Maybe we have to do a little bit more uh, soul-searching, maybe we have to do a little bit more tinkering. But, uh, so these kinds of things come into world historical relief with the French Revolution, right? And if you're not on board and all of the excesses of the French Revolution, uh, uh, come into focus with Diderot's words. Meanwhile, you've got a rival philosopher in the, the person of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, right, who is kind of against the grain, against the grain of Diderot, against the grain of Voltaire, against the grain of all of the, 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 the major hotshots of the French Enlightenment. Uh, he is, when he plans out his societies, and he's writing constitutions, and he's not just in conversation with European monarchs. You know, Corsica actually attempts, you know, he actually writes a constitution for Corsica, and he actually, you know, and for him, religion is huge. For him, there is a religion. We are worshiping the supreme being, and anyone who does not do that is an outcast. And, and for, for him, it's, you know, whereas all of the other Enlightenment philosophers are saying, look, yes, religion, that's fine but in a universal way, in a, you know, in a, in a philosophical, in an ethical way, yes, we, we can take on uh, Christian ethics. And uh, for, for Rousseau, it was almost the opposite. He said, oh, no, 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 no. Christian ethics are way too internationalist to, 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 on which to found a public morality. You know, you, you got to have old-time religion. You got to, uh, you know, none of this what we would now say is, uh, you know, a Marxist liberation theology. That's, that's the exact opposite of what we need. What we need is order. What we need is our citizens who are doing their duty and anyone who's not is, a, is excluded. And so given all of this, and it's not just about the French Revolution, we can also, we can also talk about it with the, the Russian Revolution and the attempt at state-sponsored atheism. And, uh, is religion in short, a better basis for morality than the alternative, however we define the alternative. What kind of religion? You gotta kind of take it as an inchoate mass in some ways. But okay. with old time, with liberation theology, with you, you, you gotta kind of take it as a contradictory jumble. Okay. Um, I just know a lot of conservative Christians who would automatically disagree with like lumping it all together in some sort of ecumenical Well, I, term. Yeah, I would, right. because I think you have to look at the differences between religious beliefs. Someone the other day was saying that, you know, Buddhism could exist without Buddha. But Jesus, I mean, Christianity could not exist without Jesus. And I think that's a fair statement. So, if it's just a system of do's and don'ts, you know, right, right thinking, right acting, all those things that you see in Buddhism, you could do that regardless of who your leader is, you know, and what time you're talking about. But when you're talking about um, the morality that's based on something that both Old and New Testaments had in common, in a sense, and not just the Ten Commandments, but, but just the, you know, the, uh, the Golden Rule, those kinds of things, you know, which somewhat does come across in other religious belief systems, you know, um, then I think you're, you're, 
you're founding this. What I'm trying to say, I guess, is that I agree. You can't just lump them all together. And I wonder what kind of God Rousseau was even thinking about. You know, if you're thinking about some deist uh, deity, you know, that really doesn't concern himself with the world, which is what the Enlightenment thinkers really. And you know, the Enlightenment too. You have to keep in mind. I think we have to keep in mind. It was it was really a reaction against the old way of doing things, including the Catholic Church, which Voltaire and Diderot and others were trained in by Jesuits. You know, and they were revolting against that. Yeah. Um, so. I think we have to understand they're, you know, they're maybe not the best people to be talking to about that because they're reacting against something that they were trained in uh, and uh, rejecting it. And, you know, I, I used to tell students that, you know, um, it's a good thing that we weren't founded uh, like Calvin's Geneva, you know, in the United States because we have religious freedom. It wasn't like, you know, if you don't believe this, you're, you're outcast or you're, you, know, you come before the consistory and you, they're punishing you. Or, you know, I mean, we don't want that. I mean, I don't want that. I think that's one of the great things about having the Enlightenment being the foundation for the country. And another thing I would tell students, too, is, you know, where do you see in the Bible justification for re revolution against a legitimately formed government? Where do you see that? I don't see it. Well, I think the key would be what is the legitimately formed government, right? The government of Britain. Is legitimate. Um, so where do you find revolution? But Enlightenment philosophical thought, you did find revolution uh, possible. So the founders were, founders were going to the Enlightenment political philosophy. They weren't going, in my view, uh, to the Bible to say, well, this Bible says we need to revolt against the king. They're saying we're endowed by our creator with inalienable rights, and we, you know we're in the state of nature. You know we have these rights. We're autonomous. We give up our autonomous uh, natures ourselves to societies so they can protect our rights. If they don't protect our rights, then we have the right to alter or abolish that government. That's exactly what Jefferson says. That's not a biblical concept. It's an Enlightenment philosophical concept. And thank God for it, because we have religious freedom in this country, which we would not have if we were living in Calvin's Geneva. You know, I think it's so interesting that, in terms of asking the question about um, do you need religion to have morality? And I think about so many of the world's religions evolved within the context of a state using them. You know, there's the official state Confucianism in China that basically took Confucianism and found it very useful as a means. Of course, Constantine it plays a major role in the development of Christianity and establishing what is, what are the, the, the creeds that need to abide by. I think it's hard to separate any of them out, even Islam, of course. Is, it's very hard to separate church and state out of, out of what Muhammad was was creating. Um, so you know, is there? Um, it's 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 hard to imagine. I mean, I suppose Buddhism is a kind of counter to that general principle that church and state play a role in the development of religion, and that Buddhism was a kind of Turned, it, turned into a monastic movement, uh, rejecting that so, so central to it, what rejecting the world, that that it can be sort of seen as as, as an exception to that rule. But I think it's really hard, isn't it, to to separate the needs of government in order to um, establish clear rules for the benefit of the community, which is usually the way the argument went right. uh, from the development. Yeah, I think that that tension between, and maybe church and state is not the right way to put it. Maybe, uh, I try to call it palace and temple. Mm -hmm. 
to go like this is something way before uh, Christianity. This is something way before monotheism. But that inevitably, so we can start, and maybe this is an arbitrary starting point, but with the god kings of Mesopotamia, right? Mm -hmm. And you can see something very similar happening in early China, right? Where the king also functions as the high priest. You've got this, you, you, you've got this fusion uh, happening. And because I control the weather and the harvest, I, you know, I get to command you. And, and once that starts to fall apart, then the, the legitimacy of the rule starts to fall apart. And very early in societal evolution, you then get a kind of a split into what we might call palace and temple. And we've got a priestly caste, and we've got a warrior caste. And in some ways, I would argue that this is the origin of our principle of civilian control over the military. That no one other than a priest, and usually somebody with a lot of clout with the people, could possibly restrain a warlord uh, in any kind of way, and usually not even then, you know. But gradually this tension forms, and it's not that the priests are good and the warlords or the kings are bad. Uh, sometimes it could be the other way around, you know. Uh, you know, some of the some of the uh, ro early Christian Roman emperors actually, you know, reformed a lot of very corrupt Christian practices. You know, these. Uh, people trying to weasel their way in with the widows or whatever and get, get money from them. There were a lot of ways in which the tension can go both ways. Buddhism, probably much more than Islam or Confucianism, can be compared to Christianity in this respect, right? It, it's a, in the, case of, in the case of Buddhism, it's kind of a protest, a social protest against the caste system. But then you've got an emperor like Ashoka, in India, who converts to Buddhism and repents. Uh, and so those kinds of, out of that tension, I think you can, and indeed do, get some sort of public morality. Some sort of, okay, this is, um, out of this we can start to organize a society. Out of this we can start to understand, in some ways, no doubt subjective to each culture, but in some ways more fundamental. Uh, yeah, something that we can perhaps call public morality. I think you bring up an excellent point, which I should have made but didn't earlier when I was trying to link these things. But you're, I think you're right that church and state, I would tell the students, church and state historically have always been like this. We live in an anomaly, you know, where we have a separation of those things. But usually the rulers are doing everything they can to make it seem like they're conforming to the religious practices of the, of the country, whatever. And so I think you're right. And, and so maybe if we're talking about public morality, it's going to be informed by the religious beliefs of the state. And so I think that's true. And there, another thing that I wanted to kind of bring up that I didn't bring up earlier was that I think people that are talking about you know secular origins of morality really are trying to sneak in Christian forms of morality <laughs> underneath what they consider to be secular because they'll they'll all agree about certain things you know it's wrong to murder it's wrong to and they're, they're not really coming at it because if you look at it simply from an evolutionary standpoint we could say that you know if there's scarcity of resources it's probably a good idea for me to murder the other people so I have more resources I mean so morality there would be simply what causes me to be able to survive it's 
you know, when Dawkins wrote the book Selfish Gene, when I read that, I was thinking it was like this gene has this personality of its own and can somehow <laughs> go where it can survive, you know. <laughs> and it was that ruthless, you know. And I so, have lots of thoughts about that. Yeah. But, you know, we can circle back for us another time. <laughs> but anyway, so, so those kind of things come to mind when you were talking because the church and state have always really been together. And so morality does kind of fuse itself with, with the state from a religious point of view. Depending on what religion is, the state's religion. <laughs> yeah. I would love to get into the nature of American Christianity, since yeah. it seems to have informed our conversation about what morality is in America thus love far. love to do that, too. Because I, I had a feeling it would come up, so I brought this book with me that I read in graduate school, uh, which is called uh, Worlds of Wonder, Days of Judgment, Popular Religious Belief in Early New England. Emphasis on the word popular religious belief. It doesn't say Christian religious belief. Popular religion. Who's the author? David D. Hall. Now, this book was published in 1989, which wow. was the year I was born. Wow. Um, but I, I don't know where Dr. Hall is these days, but at the time he was professor of American religious history and the Bartlett lecturer on New England church history at Harvard Divinity School. So he ain't no dummy. Um, <laughs> And he, he really gets at this question. It's been some time since I read it, so I'm not going to be able to address his argument with any authority. But I just wanted to pull two quotes from this book. From page 5, uh, For much of early Christian Europe, it seems plausible to distinguish between two Christianities, one that the clerics taught and the other of the peasants or the lower social orders. And he goes on throughout the book, basically studying the, the Puritans you know, in early New England, and talking about to what extent American Christianity, or at least this early version of it through the Puritans, was ribbon with all sorts of what we might call pagan or secular understandings of religion. Think about the, the Salem witch trial. You have Tituba, like studying the, I think it was the egg yolks in, in the cup. And the, so Christianity, as we understand it today, and you follow the strict precepts of the Bible, was laden with all sorts of folkways and, and, and ancient thoughts. And so when people say to me, you know, America's a Christian nation or America's public morality is based on Christian values, my first inclination is quite suspicious. And it's what, what tradition are you talking about? Because there's multiple kinds. I mean, let's fast forward a little bit. The Methodists and the Baptists and the Quakers and the Presbyterians and the Catholics and the Shakers and that's as many as I can think of off the top of my head. They don't all get along. They, they're all part of a Christian tradition, but they're not the same. And furthermore, who's to say what is religious and what's not? I'll put one more quote out, and then I'll let you guys you know, throw me out the window. Um, he, there's a, uh, a quote in here from G. Stanley Hall, who was a very prominent uh, 19th and early 20th century uh, psychologist, and, and I looked it up just briefly here. A review of General Psychology Survey published in 2002 ranked Hall as the 72nd most quoted psychologist of the 20th century. So this guy, born in the 19th century, lived into the 20th century, has some bearing on what the 19th century was like. And here's a quote from uh, him talking about some of his family members and other people that he knew in the 19th century. Most of them attended church more or less, but few joined. Or if they did, they fell off later in life. In their maturer years, my uncles almost never frequented public worship. They were not unfriendly to or critical of religion, but as many expressions showed, considered it more manly to stand before the All-Father on their merits as livers of good lives than to be saved by a vicarious atonement. 
this is a serious quote we need to consider. We have a very prominent you know, American intellectual and thinker saying that you know, lots of the guys I grew up with, if you were to say to them, you know, it's American, I mean, it's Christian morality that makes America strong, they would be like, we didn't really go to church that much. So again, I'm asking what tradition, what Christian tradition is American public morality built on if it is indeed built on Christianity? So I guess I'm mostly targeting you, Sam, because oh. you, you've been most vocal about the Christian tradition. But that's okay. no, that's not a that's well, not a slight to you. Well, my uh, first my first uh, response to that would be that's always been true historically. Mm-hmm. It's always been true. I mean, so how can we then claim that Christianity has some sort of objective standard? Well, around? because Christianity does have truth that not everybody subscribes to or understands, even if they're a Christian. This is one of the basis, one of the issues that I'm dealing with, trying to anyway, with the concept of unity in the church. You know, I, I may have mentioned this to you before, but I grew up as a military kid, and we mm. lived in Taiwan for uh, three years, two years. And the Taiwanese would come up to my parents, and they'd say, well, you're all Christians, but you've got all these different missionaries over there. What's going on with that? Yeah. And my parents didn't have a good answer for that. Yeah. I wouldn't either. I mean, what do you say to that? It's obvious. Um, so, and, and, you know, the, uh, the Venerable Bede, uh, uh, who was a very interesting character, I read one source said that Bede, finding Bede in Northumbria uh, would be like finding the greatest scholar in the world in some little town in Kansas somewhere. Uh, <laughs> or like Augustine yeah. in Podunk, North, North Africa. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. Yeah. But Bede called the parish priest idiotai. And you don't have to know Latin to know what that means. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so they weren't schooled in... Uh, there's a very good series, by the way, uh, Brother Cadfile series, about a, a monk uh, living in uh, Shrewsbury, England, and this 12th century monk. And he's uh, an herbalist, but he fought in the Crusades, and he uh, wants to atone for that, so he comes back and takes the cowl, becomes a monk, and he basically is like a detective. It's an Ellis Peters novel series that she wrote, and uh, it's a very good series. But one of the things it shows is how there's a syncretism between paganism mm-hmm. and Christianity. They'll go into a village, and they'll bring the bones of a saint, you know, they'll have these saints, and someone is murdered in this village. And so the, the people in the village are saying, okay, they wrap his body up and, and they want everybody to file by and put their hand on the, on the body because if the blood rises up from the body, that means they're the murderer. And that's a pagan belief. Mm-hmm. And when, when uh, Gregory, uh, St. Gregory sent the Roman mission to Britain, he told Augustine, you know, uh, if these places where they used to worship pagan stuff, you know, just cleanse them, you know, and worship God there, you know, instead. And so there's always been this possibility of bringing in these pagan beliefs into Christianity and that's been true but that doesn't that doesn't take away from the the work of Augustine or Luther or any of the great thinkers that really identify what orthodoxy is in Christianity and my my uh, argument would be there's always been a strain of orthodoxy in the church there's always been a set of beliefs that have been ascribed to as the authentic beliefs um, and so I think we could say that that's, you know, my wife and I have had this conversation many times. Uh, there are some Christians, maybe you've run across these people, uh, that would say, unless you understand the doctrine of justification by faith completely, uh, you may not be saved. Well, mm-hmm. if you go to somebody in rural England, <laughs> they're probably not going to understand the doctrine of justification by faith. They're not going to understand what the hypostatic union was. They're not going to understand a lot of these really deep Absolutely, theological yeah, truths. Yeah. And yet they can be saved, mm-hmm. you know, because if they believe in Jesus and, and, and as, you know, their Savior. So I guess what I'm saying is I, I wouldn't argue with that at all. I would say that's just pretty, pretty well understood if you study church history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both in a Protestant, early Protestant, and in an early modern Catholic context. You know, you're running into this all the time. I mean, 
you know, Luther's complaining about people in, you know, villagers in Germany who don't know the first thing about, uh, about, about, you know, uh, about his doctrine, about Christian doctrine. Jesuits are calling, you know, southern Italy, you know, the real <laughs> poor southern Italian, you know, uh, peasants. They're like, this is another Indies. You know, we can go to the end of the worlds and we're trying to educate people, but we, we like, they're, you know, the, the southern Italian peasants are just as bad as people, you know, a savage in Brazil. Yeah. <laughs> and so in, in the time of Thomas More, when he is, oh, we're talking about 16th century, uh, and so we're talking about pre-Henry VIII reforms, right? Pre-Anglican church. The Catholic... Uh, you know, the Catholic bishop, or probably the archbishop, on the feast day of St. Paul in the cathedral of St. Paul in London, used to slaughter a buck on the high altar on his feast day. And yeah, so this this kind of, uh, you know... Uh, Syncretism. I don't know what to call it. Yeah, syncretism, <laughs> uh, folkways is a really is a really good way to put it. Um, this is this is kind of ever present, and I would go even further than than the the passage you quoted, Jay Matt. I think that if you asked the question to that to that stand up, free thinking, independent farmer, you know, mm-hmm. who's uh, who's who's answering, you know, I don't need to go to church. I'm I'm you know, I've got the whole winds of my culture behind me. I've I've mm-hmm. I've got a direct communion with God. Um, we could make a. We could go even further than that, and and many people. I don't know. I. I've, who gets to define religion? Short answer: Nobody does. Like, it, like it, it's a contested concept. It's it's something that, you know, it's very easy and indeed necessary to sometimes point to, people who claim very adamantly to not be religious, and to to point out hey, some in, for good and for bad. You. Your behavior, your codes of ethics, your the, the ways in which you're living your life. It, it might be fair to call some aspects of that religious, you know. Um, so it's, you know, and, and I don't know. I'm I'm, I'm mulling over the the uh, the idea for my for for a second book, uh, talking about the long crusades, mm-hmm. talking about Christianized barbarians and secularized Christians in the yeah. rise of Europe, and like it's a, it's a fascinating thing to explore because it's. We, we, we have a very difficult time keeping a handle on, on the c- categories and the, the naming that we want to do. You know, I wonder, uh, and this is an honest question, I, you read the, about the history of Christianity, and you've got a real sense of a, of a kind of a, a dramatic um, adjustment, maybe break is the right word, beginning of the 19th century associated with movements like is dispensationalism, I think that idea that you have to return the people with the children of Israel back to Israel in order to bring about the second coming. We've mm-hmm. talked about the second coming and, and or the second uh, second great awakening, yeah. um, and I think I think uh, a lot of what people perceived as modern Christian um, the foundation of modern Christianity or the the place of modern Christianity in America actually doesn't necessarily come from this long tradition of Christianity. Uh, but that actually is a kind of product of the 19th century, mm-hmm. uh, and the, uh, the early 19th century, and then another adjustment coming out of the, the you know, the monkey trials and the yeah. kind of uh, re, um, 
a re-examination of what it is to be Christian in light of, uh, especially for evangelicals, in light of of uh, that famous trial. You're talking about the Scopes trial from Scopes, 1925. Scopes trial, yeah. yeah. So I think, to some degree, I think when we talk about the influence of modern Christianity, I think in some ways it has vestiges of, of a 2,000-year-old experience, but that maybe, maybe even most of its its important features are actually 200 years old. I would have to agree with you fundamentally. <laughs> no offense there, but I see, I see Christianity is more of a, of a cultural movement that's been updated and tinkered with as it's moved along, and when people claim that it's like this objective vehicle stretching back for thousands of years, I'm like, well, there's lots of books like this I would encourage you to read. But you have to clarify what you mean by that, because I mean... I can go back to the Council of Florence, which I did uh, my dissertation on. I mean, these people were steeped in the ancient, uh, or the writings of the early church fathers. Mm. They had a continuity with the early church fathers. This is, you know, 15th century, though. And so we're talking about, you know, a long time in between. And, and you know, Luther, uh, one of the things I disagree with Luther uh, in his views about was that the gospel had been lost between the time of the early church fathers and the time of his day by the Catholic Church's abuse. And if that were true, who was saved between that time? And I think that's really ridiculous to think no one was saved mm. between the time of the early church and the time that Luther came along. But when you talk about dispensationalism, Patrick, I think I'm a very interesting topic because I, I am a dispensationalist. And dispensationalism, okay. in its fundamental dun, dun, dun. sense, and it is a... <laughs> well, let's talk about what it means. Because yeah, yeah. it essentially means that you look at uh, Israel and uh, differently than the church is not Israel. And I would argue that one of the big problems we get with the Puritans in New England and these and Calvin in Geneva and others is that they took the church to be Israel. And so they took the laws that were meant to be applied to the state of Israel and applied them in the Christian commonwealth. And you get all sorts of problems when you do that because we're not Israel. Uh, and I would always push back when people would say, you know, if the people who would humble themselves, you know, uh, and call them, who call themselves by my name would humble themselves and pray, I'll heal their land. Second Chronicles chapter seven fourteen. Well, that's not a promise to the United States. That's a promise to Israel. Mm. And so you make a distinction between promises made to Israel and promises made to the United States, which further underscores the point that we are not a Christian nation. Like we're not Israel, and so we don't have leaders that are ordained by God in the sense that Israel did. We don't have, you know, a constitution that's ordained by God in the sense that Israel did. You know, there's a distinction between the two things. Now, there are some, there's a progressive dispensationalism, which would not hold to some of the things that the early dispensation, like J.N. Darby did, which I have no, I have sympathy for that. Uh, but nev nevertheless, the main difference is that it doesn't take the church to be Israel, and there are a lot of problems associated when you do that. So what is the dispensation for dispensationalists? This dispensation might be a silly question. But. Well, some divide uh, human history into seven periods, dispensations. They use the term oikonomia. Okay. Uh, the uh, Greek word for economy. They use that for dispensation. Okay. Uh, Paul talks about that. And the thing is, uh, you, you see, again, that after Jesus comes and dies and resurrected, we enter into a new age called the church age, in which uh, everybody... Was Jesus the first dispensation, first age? Well, or are we talking? No, no. Jesus just his death and resurrection inaugurate the church age. Okay. Okay. But in the church age, okay. the whole the gospel and Paul and uh, you know all the disciples, you know Paul was specifically told to go to the Gentiles. So you have there's a little bit of hedging on that because even in the Old Testament, 
God was concerned about Gentiles. You know, Jonah went to Nineveh, right? Nineveh was not a Jewish place. <laughs> yeah. So God was concerned about reaching Gentiles, even in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, specifically, now we go reach the Gentiles. You know, the Jews, you know, have rejected me. I'm going to the Gentiles. And so there is a sense in which, that's, and that's different than the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you have a very uh, elaborate system of laws, regulations, you know, what, 600 laws in the laws and dietary restrictions and so forth and so on. That doesn't come into the uh, church age. You know, Peter's told, you know, you can eat everything here, you know. <laughs> you don't have to maintain the dietary restrictions that once were having to be maintained. So there's a difference between the two things. Israel, if you go back to Jeremiah 31, 32, there's a new covenant to the church. Well, that new covenant, God makes two oaths there where he says, if, if Israel ceases to be a nation, the earth will not exist or something like that. It's an oath. It's a definitive oath. And so Israel somehow is going to continue to be a nation even though it's not now. So someday there will be a regathering of Israel as a nation. Two questions. Yes. Is, is, to, is the current age the seventh in, in this? No. Um, there's a, there's a, uh, uh, an eschatological end which would be the seventh. But, but I I don't think you have to subscribe to the number of okay. pages, okay. you know, innocence, conscience, governments, you know, that type of thing. I don't think that has to be done to be a dispensationalist. Now, some might argue with me about that. Got it. But the thing is, I, I call myself kind of a, uh, a loose dispensationalist in the sense that I, I just, I want to maintain the distinction between the church and Israel. Because when you do that, yeah. it really clarifies a lot of things that you get into trouble otherwise with uh, doing. It seems really important. Second question. I, as, as you both are talking about this, I immediately think of modern Zionism. Mm. Uh, is it, how would you see the connection happening? Well, it has, uh, to be, it has to be returning in faith, not just the secular state. That's what the dispensationalist would say, would argue. It can't just be a return to Israel in 1948, you know, as a secular state. Right, as a secular, indeed, socialist right. kind of right. hippie state founded. So would it be trending more towards, you know, with... There, you know, there, there are many more ultra-Orthodox who are growing in number and in political power. Well, the dispensationalists would argue that at some point they will become Messianic Jews. They will accept Christ as the Messiah. Understood. Yeah, which they okay. didn't, obviously, before. Right. 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 So that has to happen before okay. it returns. Okay. Now, all of that is, you know, it's, I think there's a biblical basis for it, but, you know, it's debated. So... But I do think <laughs> that there is a strain of orthodoxy we can go back and talk about. Again, when these guys are arguing at Florence, they're going back to the early church fathers. They're going back to their Greek texts. They're going back, and they're, they're trying to distinguish, you know, between ek and dia and what that, what that means and, and, you know, trying to argue about those things. In fact, I'm translating Bessarion's uh, oration on dignity right now uh, and he's bringing in things I didn't even know about, like the Macedonian heresy, and he's, uh, he's talking about some Macedonian. I think, well, who the heck is this Macedonian? So I do some more research, and I find out there's this Macedonian heresy, which was, you know, uh, anyway. But they are really awesome. serious scholars, and they're looking at this continuity. They're not just looking at, okay, we're, we're Christians now. A hundred years from now, it's going to be different. Uh, I don't think that ever entered it, and, and I don't think Luther and Calvin looked at it that way either. They were looking at themselves as being part of a continuity. Yeah, the true church. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think um, I think the especially looking at the role of dispensationalism within the context of Zionism is very interesting, uh, and 
and I mean, eventually, what you think about the, the the standard narrative of the creation of Israel is that you have dispensationalists in the early part of the 19th century, British for the most part, right? Who who begin to put forward, especially or or or, uh, or articulate this, sure, formulate this idea, um, and then you have. Um, especially the British, um, seeking to uh, evangelical British colonists, really, seeking to bring this about. Uh, and it's the great age of Cook's tours, so people are traveling, and the Holy Land is interesting, and the British Empire kind of wants it too, meanwhile, or the Ottomans are struggling. So, so they're sort of keen to encourage Jews to come to Palestine, and in fact, most Jews do not want to come to Palestine. That in the late 19th century, they're trying to assimilate, uh, and even right up to the Holocaust, the Orthodox Jews are absolutely opposed, saying that actually something, I'm probably not doing justice to this, but something to the effect that uh, the Jews will be returned to Israel only when God wants that to occur, and we can't bring it about through through the efforts of ordinary right. secular. Um, and so the Zionist movement is, for the most part, really a socialist movement. Uh, and you know, the, there are there are religious Jews involved, but it's a fairly minor number. Uh, so. So the creation of Israel is a product, in some degree, of Christian dispensationalism. I'm, I'm not doing justice to the <laughs> process, but it kind of—it's sort. You can make the argument that they really begin the process, and then Zionists engage in it. Uh, the end of the 19th century, they're coming away from anti-Semitism and the problems in Russia, the pogroms, and and so they are then swept up in this colonial dispensationalist dynamic and that turns into Israel. I mean, that's that's kind of the text, that's my understanding, the sort of textbook version of the creation of Israel, which I think is so interesting. Talk about unexpected consequences and dynamics at work. Well, I'm not familiar with that because I, I you may be talking about J.N. Darby and maybe then Lair Schofield and some of the others. Or the early 19th yeah, century yeah. dispensationalism. But uh, as far as yeah. my understanding yeah. is, it's always been necessary for Israel to return in belief not simply to return. Maybe that would foster yeah. that to happen, but it was never just a secular to be a secular return because, Interesting. again, Interesting. In, in the future, yeah. if Israel is reconstituted, it's reconstituted, reconstituted as the Davidic kingdom again. You know, there's a big yeah. discussion between uh, amillennialists or, or Presbyterian covenant theologians and uh, dispensationalists about whether Jesus is reigning on the Davidic throne which, of course, is what the Bible says he would now, or if that's something that's going to be in the future. Dispensationalism, dispensationalists believe that's a future thing when Israel's reconstituted and believed. He's not doing that now. So that's, you know, but you may be right. I'm just, I just don't know enough about that. But my understanding of, of that would be that they have to be brought back in the interesting. I would love to... I, Two thoughts. Number one, I want to return to slavery. I'm not sure how how extensive it needs to be, but I've been I've been holding on to this the, this little thought ever uh, ever ever since we were we were talking about it. And slavery in the New World, slavery in, in an American context and in the New World more broadly, 
is in some ways extremely different, maybe even a, a category difference, from slavery more broadly and world history in the old world. Uh, you know, there's, there's nothing more common to... Uh, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with, the, with this with my students in, in, uh, in, in, the in, the, in our course on teaching social studies and history methods of teaching to uh, prospective teachers of high school history. Uh, I'm having them read the Florida standards right now, and it's a lot. It's a, the, the Florida standards are, are pretty big, and we're not going to try to go line by line, but we're just going to hit the highlights and then, and then the criticism of those highlights. And you'll find it as a common thing to say, oh, well, I mean, slavery existed, you know, you know, in West Africa at the time, too. And, of course, this is true. And, of course, it's true that people were already in slavery sometimes when they were sold to these Western European slave traders on the, uh, on the West African coast. The problem, though, is that slavery wasn't a, uh, a permanent condition necessarily there. And so I, I, um, I do wonder how we can tie together the, the, the biblical understanding that, that, that you, Sam, were bringing and how we can talk about that 19th century ferment in which you know, abolitionists were going in one direction and uh, slave owners and their allies and adherents were going in another and, and, and never the two shall meet. Um, so, I, so I'd like to put that on the table. And then the second, uh, the second thing, and maybe this is more of a separate conversation that we'll have to have later. But the thing that, that you, that, um, that Patrick and J. Matt were talking about with, okay, from the, maybe these things, even though we're, we're claiming an ancient lineage, but maybe we're talking about fundamentally something that only dates from the Enlightenment. Um, I don't want to poo-poo the importance of the Enlightenment. But I would just like to put into context, you know, it, you know, in when you read uh, Edmund Burke and his reaction to the French Revolution, right? He's this hoary old British, uh, you know, um, uh, conservative, and he has no truck with the French Revolution. As far as he's concerned, it's all, you know, uh, pish posh. But note that. In addition, and you'll still find conservative strains who want, to, who will say, no, in fact, we reject capitalism. No, in fact, we reject trying to found a society on reason. We're, we're, uh, you'll find that criticism still around today. But you will also find a lot of people on the left who are very anti-enlightenment. You say, oh, the enlightenment, nothing, nothing good came of that. That was an ill wind. And so trying to tease apart this kind of change versus continuity, uh, trying to tease apart what exactly is new today, what exactly is modern versus what we only think is modern versus what we only think is, uh, is newfangled is a very important one. And I think it goes back to, Sam, your point about, uh, about Jefferson. Uh, it's true that, of course, the Enlightenment fundamentally influenced the creation of the American Republic. But at the same time, I think it's fair to say, and, and Jefferson's an outlier here, because <laughs> Jefferson's clearly an Enlightenment man through and through. But especially if we focus on the thought of uh, 
Hamilton too, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of Madison and John Adams. The, the political structure of the United States, when Madison in particular, I think it's fair to say Hamilton did this, but John Adams and Madison really did a, a huge amount of the grunt work on this. They went deep back into human history. They didn't just go back to Machiavelli and the, the medieval Italian city-states and try to draw historical lessons from there. They went back to the Romans and the Greeks. They went back to Polybius and Tacitus. And, um, and so, short story, I really think that there's a fundamental difference, and I think it's a positive fundamental difference, between the, the founding of the U.S. Uh, Republic and Jay, Matt, and I have had the, have gone back and forth about this, <laughs> versus the French Revolution and its lineage, including the Russian Revolution. That there's something different that separates the two. Even though we're all part of the Enlightenment, even though we're all children of the Enlightenment, I think the, the real cynicism of someone like John Adams in saying oh, the French Revolution is never going to work out, and, and, and in criticizing Rousseau, and in criticizing Diderot, um, that that put the United States on a, on, a, on a foundation that was fundamentally more stable than anything that the French Revolution enjoyed, than anything that the, French, that the Russian Revolution could have grasped at. And so, yeah, I, I, I guess part of my point is that in some ways and in some things, the, the founding of the American Republic, may be, it, it has one foot clearly in the Enlightenment, and maybe more, because Jefferson is just so fundamental to the way that Americans perceive ourselves as Americans. But we've also got that other foot in something deeper, uh, in something that, 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 that helped us to survive and to navigate the kind of winds that completely blew the French Revolution apart, completely blew the Russian Revolution apart. Now, I've always thought of that. Um, uh, the, the, the centrality of geography in American history. That, that uh, what, a, what a uniquely safe place to do an experiment. Yeah, you're now, absolutely right. Now, and uh, poor France, right? Right smack in the middle of <laughs> European affairs. On the other hand, I suppose you could argue the United States, early on, weak, and European naval powers floating off the coast could have easily enough disrupted it. I mean, I think your question is a really good one, is what, what makes America, why, why did that seem to work at least for 200 years or, or so very successfully, and we hope it continues to. Um, but um, I, I guess my knee-jerk has always been with the benefit of geography. Uh, but maybe there's some yeah, other, you're what, not wrong. what do you think might be some other, I mean, are you thinking of, what else might well, there's count? A, for there's a lot of difference between the American colonies and France. Where you have a monarchy, you have a well-established Catholic Church, you have a lot of tradition of religious wars, which clearly the Enlightenment thinkers were, uh, you know, they were against, you know, Voltaire is famously, you know, against intolerance, and yet <laughs> the French revolutionaries become pretty intolerant of those that are not committed to the revolution. So. So there's a lot of difference there. We didn't have this kind of long-standing tradition of aristocracy in this country, even though Hamilton, I would argue, uh, very much favored the, an aristocracy running things. You know, yeah, and uh, I used to put up quotes and, and ask the students if they, you know, what they think about that. And they're oh, you know, terrible. You know, 
but the point is, uh, there's a huge difference between the American colonies and France in terms of that. You know, and they were, and the revolutionaries were responding against all of those things. The Ancien Regime was, you know, the monarchy, sure. uh, the church, and the uh, the feudal system. Yeah. So we didn't have those things, you know, and so I think that has a lot to do with uh, the direction. Uh, I just started rereading uh, Alexis <laughs> de Tocqueville, right? Democracy in America, and one of the things that strikes me most. So he's writing in what, the 1820s, 1830s. You know, volume one gets published 1835, I think volume two gets published 1840. One of the things that strikes me most is the way in which he tries, he has this very interesting conception of democracy. And for him, it's this world historical force, almost like Hegel's divine world spirit or something like that. It's this thing that's been going for a thousand years and it's gonna wash over everyone and we're in the middle of a revolution. And he kind of neglects the point that you're making. Mm -hmm. He does not, he says, look, we are here in America. It's just, it's, it's such an egalitarian society. And of course he's not wrong. Mm -hmm. And what I identify that with is the frontier ethos. Mm -hmm. Like this is a new play. This is a new thing as far as Europeans are concerned, right? This is, you know, uh, European roots here are extremely shallow. Uh, there hasn't been time yet for these massive uh, hierarchies to develop as they have in old Europe. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't see it that way. Mm -hmm. He sees it as, because this is part of a world historical force, because the Americans have a little bit of a head start on us, you know, 1776 as opposed to, you know, the French Revolution and the sidewinding disaster with Napoleon, and now we're kind of back on track. Although not really, because the Bourbons are, I think the Bourbons are in power as he's writing. Legitimacy. Um, but he says, no, 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 the, the, France is just, just a little bit behind America. We're going to see the same egalitarianism in France very soon. And it, it's a little bit, I think, a misreading of, yeah. of the situation where, yeah, I, I, your, your point about the, yeah. the entrenched hierarchies yeah is very important, and of course our hierarchies today are much more entrenched than they were in the 1820s. Um, so it's an interesting thing to, to, uh, to play around with. To get another point that about, uh, I'm forgetting what it was now, but I was thinking, trying to answer that in my mind while you were saying it, about morality. I can't remember exactly what it was. I mean, I'm sure, uh, oh, the bishop's name was Stephen Elliott. I don't okay. know. <laughs> <laughs> he was a bishop of the Protestant Episcopal Church, and uh, yeah. Okay. Well, since we've brought things back to America with yeah. Tocqueville and Stephen Elliott and things, <laughs> I wonder if we could try to pull the conversation all the way back to what we were talking about at the lunch table a few weeks ago. Yes. And I was going to ask all three of you, so often, and I think you could find this all the way back to the Puritans, we have this sort of moral call in America of declension. Public values are falling. We've got to do something to, to bring back the old spirit here. Do you think that there is a decline in public morality? And if the answer is yes, what examples or why do you see that way? Patrick? Well, I think um, uh, the 
easy answer um, since you put me on the spot first. And <laughs> we can come. We can start. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Uh, but I just think of the impact. I'm a little relieved by that. Or I can start if you want. I'm ready to go. Well, I, I can think it. I can think it. Um, so I, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, of course, is the communication technological revolution, in which the, there's so much information, uh, and um, the old gatekeepers of information of the news, uh, and that it isn't it is as if they were always if they did themselves have bias. CBS, NBC, and ABC now have to share the airwaves with a host of different sources, and people have not just news at 8 o'clock and 5 o'clock and 10 o'clock, but 24 hours a day. So there's a creation of news going on, even when there isn't any. And you're saying that's a good thing? I'm not necessarily saying it's a good thing, but oh, okay. I think, back to your question about, about, I think your original question was, um, was uh, is there a decline in morality and mm -hmm. what might be the sources of that? Okay. Uh, and, and I don't know, I'm going to say that the decline in morality might be the conclusion you should draw, but it certainly, I think, um, is is our our mental universe is profoundly shaped by all this information, uh, both good and bad, and it's it, it's hard for the many people uh, to distinguish between what is true and what is not. So I think because that becomes difficult, if you're not clear what is true and what is not, then the, the, the moral action that might result from that becomes quite difficult to know what to do or what to fully believe. Uh, so I do think certainly, I guess in that sense, morality is under threat. Um, so I'll leave it there. <laughs> well, I, you know I'm going to say yes, of yeah. course. <laughs> uh, because my question always is, what would not be allowed in public discourse today? What, what aspect of human sexuality. Redistributing wealth? <laughs> that would not be allowed in public discourse. But it is, it's Punishing the wealthy for depriving most of the working class for a means of living as equals, I think, would not be allowed in public discourse. Oh my goodness. I think there's a lot of things that would not be allowed. Have you allowed ever read Tom Sowell's books, by the way? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I think if, if we're going to take the news as an example, right. look at what's on the news and take right. that as the Overton window. And I think right. there are a lot of left-wing things that don't get in the news, and I think that would be things that are shoved out of the public discourse. You mean in support of redistribution of wealth? Then? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes. Well, I'm going to say what, what I'm really referring to there is just what, if we're talking about morality, um, let's talk about crowds of people going into a Nordstrom and just looting the store. Is this uh, a specific example? Yeah, there's one in L.A. just happened a couple of days ago. Uh, San Francisco, it happens. Uh, people just publicly loot, and you're thinking, my goodness, you know, where's the standard of morality there, right? I mean, if we're taking morality to mean what we should do or what we ought to do or what we ought not to do, uh, certainly that should be on the list that you don't just go, and a lot of, you know, businesses are leaving San Francisco. Gump's, I think, is isn't that right? They're the president of that store. I don't know. I know, I know a lot of businesses are leaving. Yeah, so that they want to leave because they're it, they're just it's unlivable in San Francisco now. They've just lost any control of people just taking whatever they want. My son, who lived in San Francisco, lived on Castro Street, by the way. You know where that is. Yeah. Uh, right in the middle of the gay community there. Uh, not that that's you know any, anything here or there, but the point is, even there in the city, 
they were roving gangs of people that would just break in car windows. You just expect to have your car window broken into. I would venture to say 50 years ago that wasn't happening. Um, you can read Heather McDonald's books about you know the the mis you know misunderstanding mis, you know the lies have been told about police with regard to uh, interactions with African Americans and other people, and and the Ferguson effect that she calls it, where because of all the uh, the attention, especially since the George Floyd uh, situation, you've got police hanging back and not you know uh, not actually trying to enforce crime uh, laws anymore because there's going to be a backlash to them. So, I mean, there are a lot of ways we could talk about this, but you, you know, talk about what was acceptable. I often think about my father, who was a World War II veteran, what he would think of what's going on today, you know, uh, in culture, what's acceptable. You know, you can have a, a pride parade going down the street and people are committing, you know, they're just doing sex acts on the, on the, on the uh, platform of the truck or whatever. Is, is that something that we're, you know, concerned about? Is that a decline in public morality? I think it is. And I would be willing to ask or wanting to ask these people, what would they not allow to be shown in public? Um, and the same is true with books in libraries for kids. What would you not allow kids to see in a book in a library? Uh, used to be, what would you allow? Now it's, what would you not allow? Because they're talking about book banning and all these kind of things. Well, I don't want kids hypersexualized when they're kids. Why would we want that? What, what benefit would that be for them? to have that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think there's a decline in public morality. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, I'm not saying where the, you know, I always laugh when people talk about the Roman Empire falling because of these kind of things, which I think is really, to use a Latin phrase, a non sequitur. Uh, <laughs> because they often don't realize that the Roman Empire in the East lasted another thousand years after the one in the West fell. And it was expressly a Christian state. Uh, but the point is, uh, yeah, I think there is a decline. I think it's uh, clear uh, that uh, uh, there's just a de you know devolving of standards. Uh, people don't think anything of uh, you know cheating or doing the things that we used to think were bad. There's a there's a big issue in Hannibal right now with uh, a re, re uh, design of the conduct for for teachers <clears throat> in the school district. And uh, one of the school board members has just introduced some basic things like you know you shouldn't be publicly intoxicated. And there's been a big pushback. It's like, well, he doesn't want us to drink. You know, he doesn't want us to have alcohol. So that kind of thing. So if you're a teacher, used to be there were, I'm not saying we should have these, but there used to be morals clauses, you know, that if you were caught doing something, you'd be fired, you know. So, yeah, I think there's a, there's a devolution. And I think there's a lot of anecdotal evidence for this. Uh, I'm not an expert on this, but uh, obviously I, I, I watch television, I read things. <laughs> Well, I don't want to turn this into the Sam versus Jamie podcast, <laughs> so I'm going to push it over to Padraig. No, I'd love yeah. to talk more about this. I'd love for us to talk about whatever. We, we, need, we, need our, uh, we need a bonus episode. Yes, bonus episode. you going head to head. <laughs> Only for the patron uh, conference. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Padraig, what do you think? Yeah, the short, my short answer is yes as well. And there are so many different directions that we can take it. But I'd, I'd like to start in kind of a strange place. It definitely will go into education. It will definitely go into uh, educational fads, many of which I'm not a fan of. But let's start here. You probably know several years ago there was a, uh, a push, and it was, it was basically a spoof. It was almost an Alan Sokol moment uh, where... Um, one of the 
I think it was one of the main farm workers unions in America put out an advertisement saying, okay, all of you, this was definitely post 2008, and I'm not sure exactly when between then and now, but uh, the, the, the announcement got, got sent out and they said, hey, Americans who are looking for work, we got work for you. And, you know, you're, you're going to be picking crops. It's, gonna, it's a unionized job. It's this and that and the other thing. And, of course, no native-born Americans uh, answered that call at all. And so one of, one of I think, the fundamental points, and, and this might be a strange way to, to talk about morality, but one of the fundamental points is that what kind of society... can be sustainable, can survive, can indeed be just if no member of that society, no citizen of that society could possibly stoop to manual labor. And I know that's a little bit of an overstatement. That's a little bit of an overstatement because a lot of Americans, of course, do do manual labor. And yet we have this fundamental tension uh, in our society because we are so wealthy, because for a lot of circumstances, mostly no, through no fault or virtue of our own, we are in this incredibly privileged position. And nobody can possibly be expected to work. For me, that's, that's, that, that's as good a starting point as any. We can talk about sexuality. We can talk about uh, education and, and public order. But when we are privileged enough to abuse that privilege, to, when we are privileged enough to take refuge in childish versions of freedom and not even realize that it is a childish version of freedom, not even realize that it is an unsustainable version of freedom, We've got problems, and I'm not saying this is a new thing. We can we, we can trace it back. There are there are people who have been complaining about public morality, all the way through American history and deep deep into indeed into human history. But it is something that is mounting. Uh, the you know, Sam mentioned the, the 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 lawlessness in in a place like the San Francisco Bay Area, right? And it's 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 a fair point, you know. You could also point to homelessness in a place like the San Francisco Bay Area. And I think we were talking about this uh, uh, at, at, at some point. I think we were all talking about this maybe over lunch, the last lunch or the one before that, where my wife and I were living in Italy when our oldest daughter was born. And in Italy right now, of course, there's a huge influx of migrants. Um, and you know, the Italian government is trying their best to patrol and to prevent ships from landing, but when the ships do land and asylum is granted, uh, immigrants are shunted throughout Italy. And in any mid-sized uh, town up to the big cities, you cannot really go to a grocery store, you cannot really go to a restaurant, you can't really go to a bar without some forlorn West African standing outside begging or offering to take your groceries to the car or doing like doing what doing whatever it takes. Now, if you offered most of these Afri if you went around in the city of Genoa where 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 our daughter was born, uh, a huge a huge um, immigrant community here. And you offered them, 
you know, a halfway house type of, uh, type of deal. You're, you're going to have a place to stay. You're going to have internet access. You're going to have a place to shower. You're going to get job training. And it's not just charity. You're going to be contributing according to your ability. You're going to, uh, whether it's pushing a broom or whether it's doing some accounting for it, like whatever, whatever the case may be, 95 plus percent of people would jump at that, probably closer to 100%. Transform that situation to the homeless community in the San Francisco Bay Area, all of which, and I think this is fair to say, this is where I grew up. This is I, I know that Asian and Mexican uh, homeless folks exist in California, but they are vanishingly, vanishingly rare, vanishingly rare. When we talk about the homeless issue in the United States, we're talking about we're talking about Americans, generally white and black Americans who have fallen through the cracks. And you offer that same exact thing to them. You walk around the streets of Berkeley, California, where I grew up, and you offer that. 95 plus percent will reject uh, any such offer, especially if you tie it to no. And you're, you're going to have to be clean. Like part of like you're 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 at rock bottom, and you're like to to get yourself back up. Hopefully you'll you'll you know. Why is that? We, we, have to, we, we have to look at the unintended consequences of our just world historically just wildly abnormal wealth, wildly abnormal privilege and freedom, personal freedom. And so accepting some restrictions on our personal freedom, whether it be sexuality, whether it be uh, no, I'm, I, 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 it's, it's Berkeley, California. I, I, I'm not worried about being homeless. I like to just do drugs, and if I, you know, that, that, that's just how it's going to be. Um, or indeed, if I'm just using my personal free, like, I, okay, I, I, I'm not going to work. Like, I, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I, I, I would prefer to do anything else than work in the fields. Um, then our society has has a problem. It has a it, ha, it has a rejigging that it needs to do, and um, yeah, there, there's so many different directions we can go with that. But I, I'll leave it there as a, as a general thing. We can we can punch it through in so many different issues. Well, we're coming up on an hour and forty minutes. So what I thought I might do is answer my own question and then sort of wrap things up there. So uh, to answer my own question, I think the answer is both. No and yes. Depends on <laughs> what you mean. So we've had a variety of different, this is why I made you all go first so I could critique your answers. No. Uh, we've had a, a variety of different examples that I, I, I think are really good. I think the news media does play a large role in disseminating information that we come to accept into our cultural consciousness and then think this is what's normal and, and this is the rise and fall of this determines public morality. We can be suspicious of that model too because the news is not reporting everything, most notably any sort of left-wing message whatsoever. That's just my perspective. <laughs> we could also look at all the examples that you're talking about, Sam, all these what I would call cultural or daily incidences of, of a, a, a declining morality. And then Podrick, you talked about everything, so I can't talk about anything specifically that, that you, were, you were going at. Uh, uh, that, that's fine, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I guess I have to approach the, the cultural understanding of morality with suspicion, because I mean, go back to people like Cotton Mather, the famous Puritan preacher, always worried about declining morality. I feel like this is a constant 
cultural message around the world, but I'm an American historian, so I focus on American history. And it really depends on like whether you take the things that you see as examples of cultural decline seriously. I don't really take the parades that seriously. And that's, I think, a distinction between you and I, Sam. I would not see that as an example of, of cultural decline. I would look more to you know, the runaway power that very wealthy political donors have over our political system. I think they determine a lot of what's fil- being filtered into the public order and, and public morality and see that as, yes, a decline in public morality. That our democracy has gotten away from us. So I, I critique public morality from a structural or material perspective, not so much from a cultural one. I think so often when you hear the phrase public morality, people automatically think of these cultural examples, the books that are being banned, what, what, what's playing at the movie theater, uh, how much cursing is in public now, what you see on TV. And yeah, those things have changed, but I, we're still here. People have been worrying about morality falling down uh, in, for hundreds of years. I'm sure there were people standing outside of Shakespeare's plays and going, he talks about sex too much. I have no idea. Many thousands. Yeah, so I don't tend to take those examples seriously because those things, that's just part of the cyclical drama of life. People are going to find something that upsets them and protest it and say that this is going to be the downfall of our society, and yet we keep going. However, our systems, think about our healthcare system. It's like almost designed to extract as much wealth as possible while distributing as little health as possible. If you look at our system structurally, there is a significant decline in the public welfare, in the public good, because our systems are no longer looking out for the common people. They are uh, oriented around uh, filthy capitalist overlords. (laughs) But I realize I'm the only one that has that perspective. So I I not exactly, man. I I, like there. There's definitely a kernel of critique that that I can that I can certainly that I can certainly see and understand. Um, But again, it's going to depend on your definition of capitalism. You're absolutely right that in the kinds of transformations that society is undergoing right now, and we can look at it from the perspective of the state or capitalism or of religion, and um, and go into specifics of healthcare. Yeah, like. There's, there's a lot going on. Um, you are not wrong. That's a perfect place to stop this episode of Citizens History with You Are Not Wrong. Perhaps a, perhaps a quote sure. from Gregory of Tours, who you mentioned. Medieval Christian. He's got this wonderful line that just makes me laugh, and it probably just marks me as this weirdo. A great many things keep happening. Some of them good, some of them bad. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys both for joining us. I've Thank enjoyed you. it. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. Great.